This morning's text comes to us from a part in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is in this argument, this religious or theological argument with the righteous religious persons, the priests. And they're calling Jesus on every single thing that Jesus is doing because he's he's uprooting, he's uh, usurping the authority of the priest and and opening a, a much larger vision and reality than the priest and the religious temple uh, understood in those days. So they're threatened. Ultimately, it's why they crucify him. They're threatened because Jesus undermines the game. In this particular case, they are accusing Jesus, who has just exercised a demon, of doing so by the power of Satan. And Jesus explains to them in that great line that uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, claimed in the Civil War, a house divided does not stand. He explained to them that there's no way that I can exercise a demon from the power of a demon. It comes from God. From that we move to the 11th chapter, verses 24 through 26, this pithy little passage that is so incredibly huge in meaning. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it wanders through waterless regions, the desert, looking for a resting place. But not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes back, it finds it swept and clean and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and live there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. This is the word of the Lord. So let me ask you a question. What evil spirit lives in your house? What dark demon has moved into your guest room, stolen the television beeper, taken over your thermostat, and is now using most of the energy? What spirit has pitched its tent in your heart or your throat or your solar plexus or your mind that you just as soon would leave? We all have one, at least. I'm not talking about being possessed by Satan or the poltergeist or Beelzebub, although that's possible. In a recent article in the Washington Post written by Richard Gallagher, a legitimate and respected psychiatrist who is also Catholic and who is the go-to guy for the Catholic Church to try to diagnose those who might in fact be possessed by Satan as to whether they are psychotic or truly in need of an exorcism, He said that he knows he faces the scorn of the scientific and medical community who mostly think such things are hocus-pocus, but he stands firm, agreeing that while most people 
are not really possessed. Every now and then someone shows up who truly is possessed by the spirit of darkness. And while I'm skeptical of that personally, I also strive to be open to the possibility. Now I saw the exorcist in college, causing me such fear that I slept with the Bible under my pillow for months. And the first night, my roommate snored like Lucifer on steroids, causing me to pick my pillow up and throw it over at him while trying to exercise the beast by screaming, Get out! Get out! Apparently a few may in fact be possessed in this world, and for some reason, like the demon in Exorcist, they always seem to show up in Washington, D.C., Just kidding. This morning's passage is not talking about that kind of demonic possession, so much as possession by the -the run-of-the-mill, everyday, general kind of spirits who dog us like a shadow. Their name is Legion, it says in the Bible, a phobia, generalized fear or anxiety, Depression, feelings of worthlessness, remorse or guilt, especially shame. Shame is, I'll use this word twice, ubiquitous everywhere. ADD, OCD, or a thousand other maladies that feel like evil spirits and that will not go away. This morning's passage assumes that we all have one at least. That the real danger inherent or or prescribed by Jesus in the reality of this, that we all have one, is thinking that the security tools are at our disposal to clean out the malware or worm or whatever it is that has hacked its way into our souls. Then we begin thinking that God has completely created in us a clean heart, as we sing after the confession, that our houses are clean, and to use a religious term, that we are now righteous. In which case, Jesus says, we are never more in danger of seven more spirits coming in to the vacuum that we have created He's talking to the religious righteous people, the authorities that think they have swept clean their own houses and ghosts who are never more vulnerable to those seven other ghosts that come in. Call them the seven deadly sins, and the worst of them, maybe the first of them, is the sin of pride, hubris, the one driven by their and our insatiable ego spirit that whispers to us that we are right and righteous and clean and everyone else has been hacked. Jesus is pointing out this demon of our ego, pride, because it deludes us into thinking something that is most definitely a lie. And that is, as I said, now clean. 
Jesus cautions us not to believe we have gotten rid of it because that in itself is the greatest delusion of all, feeding the very pride and hubris that we can no longer admit. Apparently, Jesus wants us simply to own it, to claim it, to name it, to get to know it, and even to sit down with it at dinner if necessary, to see it present in our own reflection in order that it will not own us. That's the thing about this demon of pride. It's like an alcoholic who thinks that because they've been sober for five months or five years, they are no longer at risk Wise 12-steppers understand that when you think you are over it, you are in the most dangerous place of all. Pride indeed goeth before the fall. Golly, is this so especially true when it comes to our righteousness. We cannot pray it out or chant it out, give it out or serve it out. We cannot paint it over with a fresh coat of religiousness or vacuum it out even with a big Kirby. Thank you, Clayton. The problem is that the more religious we think we are, the more righteous, which is what the dark spirit of pride feeds on. Jesus knew that in the heart of each of us, We are never more in danger than when we think we've made it or found it or got it. He knew it spiritually. He knew it theologically. He knew it intellectually. He knew it intuitively. 2,000 years ago, he knew it. But now with scientific methods like MRI scans, In other psychological and neurological tests, we are proving how small and limited is our own particular personal worldview. When we think that our worldview is the right one, the only one, now scientifically they are showing that we are most especially wrong. I remember graduating from college, finally, After taking my sweet time, thinking that now I had finally come to be able to overcome most of the obstacles in life and answer all of the difficult questions. I was 23. Call it graduation grandiosity. It lasted for, I don't know, I'd like to think a month, but it was probably more like a week. But that month or week, I didn't need anyone else. I had my own back. Proud as a peacock, they say. And then the feathers fell out. What is it in us that deceives us like this, if not the demon of hubris and pride? Recently, I saw a TED talk by Julie Galef. Why you think you're right even when 
you're wrong, in which she says that we tend to play either the role of a soldier or a scout. The job of the soldier is to protect and defend even unto death, while the scout's job is to investigate, wanting to know what is really out there. These metaphors represent the two sort of stereotypical mindsets that we share in life. One is defensive, the other is curious and open. She makes the case that which mindset we use determines our own emotional and spiritual growth and well-being. She doesn't use spiritual, I plugged it in. When we take the mindset of a soldier, we are simply trained to follow orders. It is our conditioning, those orders, how we have been conditioned, the racial and religious and gender and political bias that we have learned from the particular and personal conditions we have grown up with, which is to say that we are all biased in ways we cannot see. She calls it motivated reasoning, the phenomenon in which our unconscious motivations and our desires and fears shape the way that we interpret information. So, some information, some ideas feel like our friends that we want to defend, while other information and ideas are the enemy and we want simply to shoot them down. This is why some people watch Fox News and some people watch uh, CNBC or whatever. You can tell I don't watch either one that much because I can't remember the name of it. But This is why she calls it motivated reasoning. It's the soldier mindset. When the referee calls a penalty on our particular team, it's always a bad call. But when he calls a penalty on the other team, best ref call in history. Maybe it's the way we understand our particular team president, Republican or Democrat. He or she is either good or bad, depending on which side we are soldiering and defending. The TED Talk says that this is second time ubiquitous, everywhere in us, shaping how we judge our health, how we vote, what we consider is fair or ethical, and how we judge others. And what's most scary, she says, is how completely unconscious it is. We can think we are being objective and fair-minded, and we are miles away from the truth. And the giveaway, she says, the giveaway is that we are soldiers when we find ourselves being most defensive and judgmental and name-calling. Sometimes you have to be a soldier, but only in very small and not often times. The other option she offers is one she calls the scout mindset, This is not to give in to the fear or to drive to blindly make one side win and the other lose, but instead to look for what is really out there as a scout 
as honestly and accurately as you can, even if it is unpleasant or inconvenient or undermines your particular belief set. So it leaves the question, what causes scout mindset? What enables us to cut through our biases and motivation and to see the facts more objectively? She says simply, the answer is emotional, and I'll add spiritual maturity. While the soldier mindset is rooted in defensiveness, fear, and tribalism, the scout mindset is rooted in curiosity and hope and humility. Scouts are more likely to be intrigued when they encounter something that contradicts their viewpoint than they are to be defensive. Intrigued. Their values are different. Believing that it is more virtuous to test your own beliefs and less likely to say that someone who changes his mind seems weak. And most importantly, they are grounded. That is, that their self-worth as a person is not tied to how right or wrong they are about any particular topic. When something breaks in to them that opens up a new possibility, they say, huh, looks like I might be wrong. Doesn't mean I'm bad or stupid, and doesn't especially mean that I should be ashamed. I'm just incorrect. In the end, these scout traits are what researchers have found to be predictors of good judgment. They are primarily not about being smart or intelligence or how many degrees you have. In fact, in many cases, that only adds to the soldier mentality, but instead about spiritual and emotional growth. Then she says, for whatever reasons these days, we are raising more soldiers than scouts in our world. She ends her speech with St. Exuperes, the author of The Little Prince, quote, If you want to build a ship, don't drum up your men to collect wood and give orders and distribute the work. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea which means he's appealing to that scout nature in us. So the question she leaves the audience is for us too. What is it that you, we most yearn for? To be right and to defend your righteousness and beliefs? Or do we yearn to see the world as a journey, an open book, growing and learning and discovering? As a church, the vision and opportunity we have before us now, especially in this world, is to build a community of scouts in a world that is more soldier-like, to own up to our own ghosts and biases and social and emotional constructs that constrict our worldview. I mean, come on, we're looking through something about that big when we're talking about a truth and reality that is so big we can't even imagine it. To claim the spirit or spirits that 
mess us up and even to come and see them as something like a gift that keeps poning at us and punching at us and hounding us and haunting us so that we will be humbled enough to finally give up being good little soldiers. Think about how our nation and our politics would be different if we were more like scouts. Think about how religions would be different if instead of being dogmatic little religious soldiers, we were scouts. Think about how our own personal relationships would be if instead of defending ourselves and our points, we stayed open to the possibility that that other person might just be right. church that strives to be scouts rather than soldiers does not claim to know too much of the Bible or theology or politics. This church is willing to venture out into the unknown mystery of life with curiosity, hope, and vision for the kingdom of God who again, I will say, is again so incredibly ever-present and large, it will blow our minds. A church that strives to be scouts rather than soldiers is willing to claim that we haven't, as I said, found it or been saved, but that we are being saved and that we have been found rather than finding it ourselves and that we are not so much the righteous ones as the human ones, each one of us possessed by our own demons and also the very grace of God given to us to live graciously in spite of them. A church that strives to be scouts rather than soldiers is willing to have hard conversations about organs and chancels and life centers openly and in trust with each other, believing that together the answer we come to will be better than the one that is most powerfully and strongly defended. A church that strives to be scouts rather than soldiers humbles itself, not counting equality with God, as Philippians says, a thing to be grasped but empties itself, taking the form of a servant, following the greatest scout of all, Jesus Christ. This is the vision of Riverside, struggling with our own demons like everyone else, open to the grace of God, I pray we continue to yearn for. All houses have ghosts, but by the grace of God, they end up being the very source of our healing.